0: We are rolling on both fronts. So yes, hello, welcome to projecting again. I wasn't here last week because my eyes were lasered as some of you may know. I'm sure I have thousands of listeners out there on t- internet and all that nonsense. But yeah, got my eyes lasered, things are good. Today's probably the clearest day I've had. Um, people got to make fun of me as I wore big old goggles and my girlfriend and mom watched as they actually cut my cornea open and did laser surgery to me. So that was very, uh, I'm, I'm proud of them for staying. So anyway, I didn't record last week. I started a set as well. Well, I guess it was, yes, it was last week. I didn't record one because of recovery, and then I started a set. So here I am. I'm back. You don't pay me anyway, so yeah, piss off. So I'm here with Scott, my brother. He's here in town, and uh, we're gonna be talking all kinds of things. The problem is, he's too smart and knows too many things. The initial objective, and I'm sure we'll cover it, is he did a really interesting thesis on Creole identity in New Orleans and Louisiana and how it's kind of a <clears throat> microcosm or a, a thing to understand the rest of the nation. We'll get to that. But um, first and most important, USA, 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 just saw the World Cup. How is that? yeah you right have you watched a single women's soccer game i have i just watched
1: i was just watching the u.s play germany and we won that game and then we beat japan and now we won it again so finally we're actual world champions there you go
0: yeah i think that's something i didn't watch jack for female soccer i I guess i'm a terrible fan but i watched when it counted right i can say i was there so it's over a third time right uh, we won in nineteen ninety-nine
1: versus China. I think we lost to Japan last time and then we beat Japan this time. So yeah, redemption we did. We did. is the best form of flattery.
0: That's one way of putting it. <laughs> of course Taylor, my sister's fiance, the whole time was was just waiting. He wanted someone to cry he was so he was so enthusiastic upon <laughs> one. We we know he's joking, but a part of me believes there is there is some li- there was some joy there. There was. It was indeed. <laughs> And we also found out and, and during the, the moment of international sportsmanship and FIFA that Greece has refused the austerity measures. Yes, they have. And didn't their prime minister step down? Well, well no, he's staying. Well, they've
1: accepted... So what they're He's staying thing, because on they their reject Greece, it. Is,
0: Greece is in trouble and, uh, with the Eurozone, and they've, they've been... They're trying to get... Austerity measures passed, like the EU wants to put austerity measures on them, you know, all that stuff. I'll, 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 I'll so the out.
1: deal is so that yeah. Cyprus is going to stay because they rejected the austerity measures. So, cheers. As I was telling some friends the other day, this is the, the Eurozone crisis is the worst of all crises. You're asking the Greeks for precision and the Germans for mercy. So I think we're <laughs> going to be left with a, uh, you know, Greece creating Western civilization and bringing it down with it on this one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh,
0: geez. But I think it'll actually be, I think it'll be a period of economic tumult as they
1: bring back the drachma, you know, the drachma, which was the former currency of Greece. But I think Greece is well poised to become the second country in history to become an advanced economy that goes from advanced or developed part of the OECD to non advanced the other one being Argentina. So we'll see what happens. I don't know. I think <laughs> it's
0: exciting. They'll have <laughs> some
1: recovery at some point, but it will be a couple years down the road.
0: Um, and a quick apology ahead, um, we're actually at our parents' house right now recording upstairs, so if you hear my mother cackling or my dad yelling something, then, you know. Hmm. The family is alive and well. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so, you just got back from the Hill. You were out in D.C. doing what? I was working for Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, our, our latest Yahoo Took over for Landry's old spot. Uh, Mary Landry was thirty
1: years. No, a little under that. I think she ran years? two very competitive elections, if I recall. Oh, I thought uh, she was like been in for like, twenty years. Th- no, she at least two terms. I think I she, she might have years.
0: just finished her third. Okay, so she did eighteen years. Yeah,
1: I think it was close
0: to eighteen. I know there's no way it's just two because people are saying like, oh. She's well, she
1: would have finished. She had two competitive, and then she won in two thousand eight. Again, went during the Obama year, and she won
0: pretty convincingly in that election. I think it was against John Kennedy, Mm.
1: state treasurer.
0: Yeah, okay. See, this is is why. Scott's just... If there's one thing any of you should take away from this, you may think you're smarter than him, but you're not as informed as he is. Mm -hmm. No one is. It's kind of scary, and it's really bad to get into a facts or stats battle with him. You're just going to embarrass yourself. But... Um, so, so talk a little bit about working on the Hill, man, because I've had some friends do it, and, you know, obviously you, I know you can't divulge everything, but, um, a little bit about your experience working in Cassidy's office, because, uh, we, we all know, it's no secret, you're a little left-leaning, um, socially at least, and a little more conservative economics, but you don't identify as a Republican. No. Um, and you were working for a Republican senator, and if I, would you say those are fair characterizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you, when you're working on the Hill, it's sort of an interesting process, and I guess when... You're looking. It's just one of those interesting experiences when you're working up in Washington because it's you always sort of have it as a little bit of a city on the hill. I know you, the U.S. in recent years is you know we're all cynical towards Washington in many in many very important ways, <laughs> you know just in terms of understanding and critiquing the process as it stands. But I think one of the things that I thought was fascinating is how it's it's real people making real decisions in real time, and I think that's an important. Point to impress upon people, just a sense of, you know, you wake up in the morning, you go through the same motions that everyone does during the day, and you're watching people who are permanent staffers on the Hill grappling with decisions as they're being made in real time. So a couple of the ones that were really important while I was up there was King v. Burwell, which decided that the Obamacare subsidies are legal, And in terms of deciding if you have an entire group of people and people who are gunning on having the Obamacare subsidies taken away, and they're you know gunning on that, and that's what they have to rely on. What's it mean when that incentive and that entire you know the Supreme Court at one instant just you know puts that entire plan in jeopardy? And
0: that's a really you know you, you put in jeopardy yeah, you, it's, gone. It, it's gone it's gone it's, it's gone so, well that's an interesting question i have for you because it's so funny i guess not really a question and this is you know classic republican bashing which you know it's it's such a how controversial to attack the republican party as a young white male right but um the but one thing that was interesting was that the, you see a lot of protests against um yeah. when the gay marriage vote happened when the when the um i'm sorry what you were just talking Bipper, about King Beaver. Yeah, well, King all yeah. well just happened. <laughs> um, he's all these protests. And one of the interesting arguments I saw was like Secretary General's people being like, Well, I don't think it's right that five people decide what we all have to do. And I'm like, You mean literally a the thing they've done for 250 years? I mean, that's the point of the Supreme Court. Like, I, it blew my mind. People were just like, All of a sudden, the Supreme Court's It's like, Am I out of touch? No. Supreme Court, there yeah. who's wrong. <laughs> There's a difference on the Hill. I mean, I I, I didn't get the impression. I
1: mean, I, I don't know all the nuances. And Cassie ran on that, right, against Obamacare. I mean, that was a huge thing. Well, right and that's going to be And I mean, and he could, you know, put forth policy that could eliminate that. I mean, it, it's it's – I think I'm more interested sometimes in just ideological clashes just from the standpoint of, you know, sometimes there are individuals who think that the policy is not advantageous for America. They put forth bills that, you know, they think are advantageous for America, and that's where the battleground is. I think, you know, we had a case of Bobby Jindal recently sort of arguing for eliminating the Supreme Court, and, you know, it's Twitter. You don't know whether it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think in line with, you know, Bobby Jindal's commentary as of late, it would not be um, a stretch to believe that he probably does think to a certain degree in the nullification of the Supreme Court. And I think that's something that we have to think critically about just from the standpoint of... nullification when it, they rule against him. Well, exactly. I mean, it's the idea that when times are good, you're willing to create, you know, and this is being facetious, but you're willing to create a police state. But if the cards are turned against you, then it's about states' rights. And I think that that is a an issue that's always at stake in the sense of if you don't have a clearly defined ideology on either end and you don't have exactly a bright line for where you're going, you know, so we want state's rights. Well, what does state's rights mean? What are state's rights? Well, if we've never had a clearly codified system of what always belongs to the state or doesn't belong to the state, then you could argue, well, we should, you know, annul this, you know, get rid of the Supreme court. But if the Supreme court argues in your favor, then they're upholding state's rights. It's sort of this, weird nebulous concept at times that I don't always think
0: you cons- well, just swing when it's convenient, you know. Yeah, and that I
1: mean it's a natural human tendency. There's no if and or buts about that. But I think You know, you can argue for court overreach, and that you know, I'm sure that's a very valid argument. I
0: I I personally should they interpret or be strict about the yeah constitutional? Yeah, and
1: that's going to be a debate that always exists. But I think that there are times in which the Supreme Court swings conservatively. And the New York Times had a fascinating article, and just in terms of overarchingly on its history, the court tends to be more conservative. And I think that when you take the conservative decisions as a status quo, that makes the liberal decisions seem more jarring. And I think that when that's the case, then you're more inclined to say, "Well, yeah, there's make like, a swinging change, just well, seems
0: unusual." Yeah, so yeah. Expecting. Then
1: they're somehow deviating from the norm, and then you have to get rid of it. And the way you know you have to solve the issue, and the way you solve it is by saying you need to get rid of it. And that's it, it's kind of a it's it's over you know in terms of argumentation it's just a sort of I think it's an overreach I think it's it's you know you're will if you're willing to accept the benefits when it benefits you but you're willing to say that it's irrelevant when it's again you know that it's a you know rogue institution when it's against you that just doesn't in- encourage the discourse in the United States and I think you know gay marriage is sort of one of those interesting topics because you have this topic that you know I I was reading an article recently that's really fascinating. It's the idea that when the United States has social movements, if it's the idea of individual rights versus a sort of esoteric concept or like an ethos, so you have an ideology. So right. one is sort of religious freedom. Well, how do you define religious freedom? Well, religious freedom is religious freedom. And you go, well, but what's the bright line? Where do we know whether we're upholding you know, religious freedom?
0: Right, because when you're dealing with ideology, there's no concrete...
1: There's no concrete. It doesn't mean that the that's not valuable. It is valuable. You like we should value have freedom. We value
0: liberty, right? Exactly.
1: You race. should, but you do. If you're going to raise an issue, oftentimes you need to provide a bright line if you want that issue to be taken seriously. Gay marriage is a really interesting case because the gay marriage. If you were just arguing that you know LGBT you know, Q community needed rights, but you did not define what those rights were or are then you would have a much harder time upholding those rights. They become
0: marriage rights, it's very specific. But when
1: it's marriage and you say, well, we want an individual right to marry, then that becomes a much more easy, tangible thing to uphold. So the Constitution, over and over and over again, through civil rights, through interracial marriage, it through needs anything, a
0: specific thing to it's enforce.
1: a very tangible, specific thing that you're upholding. So I was a little surprised when, you know, Bobby Jindal sitting, you know, sitting there going, we need to get rid of the Supreme Court. I'm going, well, how would you, you know, five to four is a very, you know, it's a very narrow decision. That's that's true. But I think that you could There's almost plenty bet the farm. Narrow. You can almost bet the farm, in the, at least in the last, you know, couple decades, that if it's a battle of individual rights versus a broader ideology without a clear bright line, then you will, they, the courts will almost, you know, go towards the individual rights. Right. And I don't know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know all the legal justification and why that, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of legal theory behind it, and you can draw on a lot of legal precedent for this, but I, I just think that if, you, if you're if you painting broad strokes and you kind of look at social movements from a very kind of thousand foot above view, then you can look down on it and you can say if it's a battle of individual rights versus a you know ideology, then you know nine out of ten times the you know the the clearly defined rights will win.
0: Mm-hmm. So very interesting. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I I, I just don't have a response to that. I said I mean right. I mean it's it's even look at something like something as we always just we always talk about Jim Crow rights, everybody equal. That's a very specific thing. It was like. Yeah, in some yeah. ways it's kind of vague, but the whole thing is based on like facilities, right? They were saying yeah. in a very specific way what that was about. And that was a little bit of my view
1: in the... Um, Sorry to drag Jim Crow into this. I think yeah, just with but all in the, the confederate talk, I think that's yeah. on my
0: mind. Yeah,
1: it was like Oberville, <laughs> Obergefell v. Hodge, I think was the Supreme Court case that we just recently decided. I was very fortunate. I was at the Supreme Court when they announced it. And that was sort yeah. of a neat effect of being up in Washington when they did it, the heart Senate buildings right across the door from the Supreme Court. And I thought one of the most fascinating elements of it is when when they announced that they were – the Supreme Court, I think it was a year ago while I was in D.C. actually interning, the, um, they announced that they were going to take the case. And I thought it was really interesting because at the time, and it, it had to do with what I was studying uh, um, in terms of the Plessy v. Ferguson case, I kind of recoiled. And the reason I recoiled, I went, well, you know, we – Sometimes when you're liberal or you're kind of you know in some of these social movements in our recent years, um, you know there's sort of almost this feel that progress and you know is inevitable and what is progress, you know it's sort of this so, sense that like you're automatically going to move forward and what is forward you know lines ideologically with the social movement.
0: Right. And let me guess what do you think. It was going to be a threat that like, the Supreme Court could stop it.
1: Could stop it very yeah. abruptly. I, I mean, they could building. have gone it the opposite way. And to be honest and with you... And suddenly
0: the natural tied to stop.
1: And to be honest with you, at 5-4... It could have easily gone the other way,
0: you know, and it, they. Yeah. That's a close call. You're that's
1: right. a very close call, and that was kind of my knee jerk reaction too. Yeah. I'm very happy it didn't go that way, I, but I was kind of sitting at the Supreme Court, and that's the ner- That's why you're nervous. All right? you
0: think in your mind is, and they came out you're like, "Oh my God, what if it's?"
1: What if, right? You know, you're sitting there, you're with thousands upon thousands of
0: LGBTQ yeah. supporters, It's you to just- ask people to wait for the inevitable change. But it's yeah. true. You're like, "Oh my God, no. do you risk expediency and I, at I, the whole cost of the issue?" And <laughs> I understand. I
1: understand why you'd want the Supreme Court because it, it solves it. It's quickly. pretty authoritatively, It's yeah. very authoritative. I mean, short of people <laughs> threatening nullification of the Supreme Court. But the, it, it's very authoritative, and it, it's a way to, you know, you. and I do think that if going into the case, there was a sense that they would uphold it. And I think that was a, if you're a betting, you know, if you're someone who's betting on it, then that would be the right way to swing your bet.
0: But... Yeah. That being said, there's always that case.
1: It's still fighting for (laughs) it, and I agree. You know, it's very unlikely that Mississippi. You know, I mean, Alabama ironically had done it because of the district court. But if Mississippi, you know, they had said that a state has a legal right to ban it, then I mean, Mississippi, Alabama, some of these states just would not have legalized it. And you know, and that's those communities are you know in positively saying you know they're saying that this is representation of our mentality, but that does mean discrimination to a certain degree. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, as I was saying, it's just it could have gone the other way and that would have been disastrous. But, you know, at at the end of the day, let bygones be bygones. You accept the ruling. You enjoy the ruling. I'm happy individually that that will be the ruling and that we will have gay marriage moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And and I don't know. It's funny because like when the Supreme Court ruling was happening, like, I knew it was coming, but there wasn't this, like, hyper-anticipation, right? I guess because, like, we're in such a conservative state, even in a liberal city like this. But I think it was, like, all of a sudden I was like, oh, yeah, that's coming out in an hour. It yeah. was interesting. And then, like, and when it came out, it was announced. Yeah. I heard gay marriage is legal in the U.S. And I'm so used to seeing, like, oh, medical marijuana is legal, but this is, you know, there's always these stipulations and everything, well, right? It's always, like, and, and, and so the idea that suddenly at, like, one minute earlier – Two people couldn't get married, and then the, the clock changed, and it was like it was legal, instantaneous. Like like people could literally I don't know that's, that's just so wild to well, me. And you, you don't have a like I can't think of many moments like that in our lives. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I think uh, one of
1: the fascinating you know when you're up in your
0: democracy,
1: you hear about it up in DC, <laughs> and you know I, I think uh people in the by and by were very respectful of the decision and kind of you know move forward and kind of just accepted it for what it was, but. I think one of the fascinating things when you're up there is when the decision came out and I'm sitting at the Supreme Court and you're amongst everyone and you have the red, you know, human rights campaign flags and you're all talking about it and you're all very excited. And then suddenly you have all the interns in their sneakers run out from the Supreme Court and they're sprinting, they're sprinting, they're sprinting, they're sprinting sprinting, and they arrive at their, you know, the news anchors and the news anchors are yelling at them and the news anchors announce. But when they originally announced and they're like gay marriage is legal, I think that you had the same question and but because there wasn't this immediate outcry of hooray. You know, you're expecting everyone to be jumping up and down and crying and screaming and everything. But it wasn't that at first. It was great. And what? What's else? What's what's going on? What's what's the stipulation? But there was no stipulation. That was the ruling.
0: The ruling was illegal. De- and then, yeah. you had, it took
1: about 10-15 f- minutes before people started going, oh my God, we can get married. We could literally walk away from here, go to the D.C. courthouse and get married. Holy son of a gun. Granted, they probably could have before that. <laughs> but it's just the idea that nationally you could do that.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I thought that was really interesting, and then you had this beautiful case where you know Obergefell. I know the individual, his partner had passed away before he you know, and he read he had this really touching moment where uh, Obama called him and they talked on national TV. But the general, the people that were walking out of the Supreme Court, one of them was a lesbian couple. That when they came out and they're coming out on the stairs of the Supreme Court and everyone's sort of en- exiting the building, they raised their hands up together, and you I just remember hearing everyone's running up the stairs, you know, over close to them, and you hear just hear the cheer years go out. And that's sort of the moment when I went, this is real, this is tangible, this is happening. There is gay marriage throughout the entire United States of America, and this is incredible. And that is one of those moments where you sit there and you go, that is a moment, and that is something that you'll remember forever. Personally, in the state of Louisiana, gay, you know, LGBTQ community, you know, anyone can get married.
0: Yeah, it really is like... It can't be said Which this was well like a civil rights thing for us. I mean, it, it it's everyone always points to civil rights rallies and Martin Luther King and all these things, and 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 it's always that's always used as a tool for so many things. It's Used as a tool to explain why black people rioting is wrong and not doing proper. Or it's used to explain like we we talk about fundamental rights now, and they go, well, it's not like when black people couldn't marry white people. And the thing is that it's like, yeah, but that was half a century ago. I mean things have changed and our thing is that we view the gay community exactly like that like that is it, it, it's it's this inability of people to understand that like there's still a large portion of the country that thinks it's a choice it's a lifestyle it's not something ingrained and I think that it was so fascinating to see this I'm hooked on fascinating the way you're saying now but it's it was so interesting to see it happening because i went like it's about time like for, I think for so many people our age, it was something we're like, why was this happening? I, mean, I find myself all the time going, uh, yo, it's 2015, quit using the N word, like things like that. And the same thing felt with gay marriage. Like how are we still fighting this? Like, like you want scientific evidence, that exists. You want emotional evidence, that exists. You want arguments for individual rights, that exists. I mean, it's, it, it was unbelievable the amount of friction that was still against it this year. And, no. and obviously the tide was turning against it. But well, it, it is... I don't know. It was...
1: No, and things change. I mean, and I guess what I was getting at a little bit earlier is the idea that when you study civil rights movements, you always think that there's a sort of precipice in which you completely feel the change that's yeah. happening to society. But for the first 10 to 15 minutes after the ruling... People were processing and trying to understand what was going on because people still are across the country. Because it's still not
0: sunk in. No, it hasn't like, sunk like in. The US and,
1: and I think that's an important point yeah. is that these things are not always tangible in the way that we think they're tangible. And that, well, we, especially we can, when we're not gay, when and you're, and you're not studying it, it directly, or you're studying yeah. it historically, and you're kind of one off from it. But yeah. when you're there and you're living it, and suddenly. It's when the rights come to you and you're able to experience it. You're able to walk into the courthouse. You're able to get married and then you feel it. And it might not... Everyone in society might not feel it at the same time. But you know when it's absent. You know when you do not have that right. You know when it's... You know, you can't walk into the courthouse and get married. And you yeah. might not able to be pre- you know con- conscious of when that lack of right is gone. You know, you're not... The positive right it's not you don't right. necessarily recognize when it's there we lost
0: a negative we, we
1: lost we, a negative rather than gained yeah. a positive but it's when you gain that positive that's when it's real and i think that's what's interesting today with any civil rights movement you, anyone who's adju- you know who's arguing that they want equality it's that to the rest of the world it looks like you're trying to take away the negative but for the individual fighting for it they're trying to also gain the positive positive. and it's when they gain that positive
0: that's when you know that's real Now, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about this. There, there's a lot of thoughts going to go now with that, but I can't remember it. Yeah. Probably because you brought me scotch. But um, <laughs> oh man, yeah, it must have been crazy being there. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> you're In the right it's place at the right time, you're
1: sitting across from the U.S. Capitol in front of the Supreme Court of the United States, and you know, it's just it's one of those feelings where you're sitting there and, uh, at all times. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things is you're sitting next to someone from, you know, you're standing next to someone from, you know, there's a couple from Tennessee, and, you know, they started crying and kissing, and, you know, you're just sitting there, you're just sort of like, I am from Louisiana, I'm standing next to Tennessee, and I'm standing next to Alaska, and there's no rhyme or reason why we should all be sitting, you know, standing here today before one of the most powerful institutions in our country, but we are. You know, and we're all, you know, you just celebrate that moment. and that, This is something that's truly, you know, universally beneficial. It's not just, this is something that's not going to just resonate from Maine to Guam. <laughs> this is going to be something that resonates from all across the world because it's a big symbol in terms of, you know, how we view these rights and how they're going to be. And, right. you know, every country will arrive at it on their own accord and however it arrives and whether it does arrive. But I think that, you know, under,
0: standing up for civil rights is never a bad thing. Fair point. So I always love when people talk about like social justice warriors. I'm like, dude, I'll be called a warrior for social justice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I, I always joke,
1: I uh, one of the things I always joke, and this is not a slight against San Francisco. I know it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city with you know, and it's had its but political and but, cultural impact. But my joke about liberalism <laughs> in general is there are two types of liberalism. There's bleeding heart liberalism in which you support everything for everyone does. You know, you're kind of like, I support you. Oh, no, I, I'm okay. You know, i just kind of doing what I'm doing. No, but I support you. No, 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 no. I'm just going to go grab a drink. It's important
0: over that you know and everyone else knows that, that I support, I support you. you.
1: No, I'm just going to go grab a drink over here. You know, you do. And then I kind of joke that there's New Orleans liberalism, <laughs> which is kind of like, eh, you do you. <laughs> it's kind of like this sort of sense of like, you know, the there's a lot of contradictory things existing within the same space. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of let the space, you know, people navigate that space as they so desire. And that's kind of, and they both have valid spaces. And, you know, I think that's always something that's important and I, you have to balance it to a certain degree in a sense of, you know, they're going to be people that just kind of want to do their thing, and you got to give them the widest berth possible to allow that to happen. At times, you know, and it, I think that you could arrive at civil rights and to a certain degree through that mechanism. And then there's a more proactive side of it, yeah. and they are both valid and they both work in tandem, and you can arrive at it. But that's always sort of my joke is that there's sort of San Francisco liberalism, and there's New Orleans liberalism. They both operate within the same space to a certain degree, and people have different relationship and re- and they have different resonance to different groups in different ways. But yeah. Mm.
0: <laughs> On that note, New Orleans, we can kinda kinda shift gears here, because I, I really think it'd be interesting to talk about it, and I'm surprised we've already man, we've gone so far we've even gotten to the original idea, which is great. We'll probably have to do more. But you know, as you so you did your thesis just talking about New Orleans on Creole identity. And mm-hmm. Creole is a very complicated word to unpack in New Orleans. Very and before we get underway, Cajuns and Creoles are not the same thing. Uh, your Cajuns are people who were basically the French kicked out of Canada. And they move down south into the Acadiana region. You have your Cajun triangle, your Chafalaya, and all these areas that basically your Cajuns live in. You get that old boujo and down by the bayou, beautiful of P-roll and head on out with right? right. You, get all, you get all that, the stereotypical Cajun you known for their spicy foods and jambalayas. And then you have, uh, well, I know jambalayas are in Vegas, but um, but then Creole um, is kind of also complicated because it's not one place either. It's like they came from France mm-hmm. to America. Well, and then you have your, like, Haitians well, who came. And it, it's yeah. like, this is where Scott's whole thesis... I'm not going to explain it, because this is really where Scott was coming yeah. from. and Creole identity and, the, well, I guess, and unpacking it in Plessy versus Ferguson. And, yeah, and, and I and guess that might be a start. Construction,
1: yeah. Yeah, that might be a start to understand it as sort of, <laughs> who really is Creole and why are they Creole? <laughs> That's a cocktail explanation. So, <laughs> you know, Creole is... Has a broader understanding, and Creole existed throughout Latin America and Spanish, you know, in Spanish, you know, in the Spanish New World, and then in you know the French New World, and sort of the colonies that were they were creating the definitions they were creating. The specific context for Louisiana comes out of the Caribbean, and my great, you know, one of the jokes I say, and you know, I think it's a true line, is that New Orleans was born in the Caribbean and raised in America, and I think that the particular historical resonance of that comes from the definition of Creole. That Creole has it sort of. It normally, groups fight, and this is sort of an interestingly a battle in terms of racial identity in the modern era, and it sort of recast what old definitions that were very clearly defined were. And one of those examples would be so well, there are white Creole definitions and black Creole definitions within Louisiana, and they were operated within the same space, and you weren't necessarily questioning those identities in real time. So, white Creole is sort of in the French context comes from sort of in the same context as Spanish uh, definitions. You have people who are you know whose parents were born in France or born you know you know on continental Europe. They come to the you know come into the colonies in the Americas, and then they are you know their children are born. So, as that group of white European settlers starts picking up you know wanting more political leeway and sort of more political rights, they kind of slowly identify as Creole and Creole coming from sort of Latin and understanding of native. So you are within that, you know, you are native to the place that you are within and they they are not mutually exclusive identities. You can still be French and still be Creole and they work perfectly within the same space. Black Creole is a really interesting definition as well because you have the Boissals who are people who are take, you know, who are taken literally from Africa, put on ships and come to the New World, and so this is part of the transatlantic slave trade and this is uh, you know this is real millions upon millions of people. Would you count the New World?
0: Are you including Haiti in that or are you? Yes, and that?
1: Haiti is yeah. for the yeah. French. So in in the. You, you know, know Lusophone languages. world or Portuguese-speaking world, Brazil is the great example of that. And the, I think in the Spanish-speaking world, you know, Cuba is one of the great, you know, is sort of the entrepôt of the slave trade. In the French-speaking world, Haiti. That's a word right
0: there, yeah. curious,
1: So in the, <laughs> yeah, in the uh, French-speaking world, it was Saint-Domingue, Haiti. And Saint-Domingue in the 1680s really starts being colonized by the French. You start setting up plantations. This is sort of an interesting historical fact that Saint-Domingue had a lot of sugar cane, but it also had a lot of cotton as well. And that sort of plays its own impact on Louisiana's history later. But what happens is the French start bringing slaves over, Beausau, people who are coming from the boat, you know, are coming over um, from, you know, Africa directly. But they start importing hundreds of thousands of people. And the Death rate in Saint Domingue is so high that they never reach a positive
0: birth rate. And so if I remember correctly, sugarcane is particularly dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. Yeah, sugarcane plantations are like super dangerous. And it's it. one and of they the problems with that with the Spanish yeah. and, and South America. And the too.
1: argument is because of the sugar I mills and the way that it was production, uh, one of the arguments about sugarcane is that it's one of the first industrial industries that you need people at every single stage from the cultivation to the production to the manufacturing to this you know to the shipping and it's one of the first industrial Commodities that really comes out, and it's coming out of the Caribbean, it's coming out of Saint Domingue. They're figuring out new ways to manufacture, grow, and expand the
0: cultivation thereof. Yeah, cause it's such a finicky thing that every advance saves you so much money.
1: Yeah, and so what happens it goes bad really fast. And if right? you were
0: part of it, it goes bad really fast. Yeah, quickly.
1: you need to ship it off, you need to
0: distill it yeah, quickly. If you don't you're move, really you don't move it, it quickly from harvest, you lose yeah, the crop. You're going to lose the crop. And that's where people died because they were moving such blit. Split speeds and such high heat. and high heat and, you know, over literally boiling cauldrons, which is horrifying.
1: But one of the interesting things that happens, you you know, if you are born, if you're an African slave, bocile, born in the New World, they start adopting a, a simultaneous Creole definition. You are born in the New World, and this is where you start getting Creole languages from. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, debate about specific, you know, construction of specific Creole languages. But, you know, you have these... Varying languages
0: and like who made it like the French or the Haitians. Is that what you mean? Well, not not even so each
1: each island each colony kind of develops its own Creole There's enough cross-pollination There's enough cross-pollination between certain islands that some of the Creoles end up being very similar Haiti because of its specific uh, Historical development changes after its revolution and Creole takes a different turn that's less You know it, it, it kind of diverges from the French language but what happens is you have the offspring of African slaves who are born in these colonies. You have a you know, they start be called being called Creole. They start developing this language that is this sort of mix between African languages. And depending on the specific slave populations, where they're from in West Africa or you know the Bight of Guinea or anything, that percentage of the language will enter it enter the Creole language. And as they're developing that Creole language, they're going to be communicating in different ways. So you have a black Creole population that's developing, that's born in these colonies. And what changes is, so as you have slaves arriving in Saint-Domain, you have relatively few French settlers, but who own the plantations and are expanding plantain, you know, plantation operations, the French create the first code noir, the black code. And the Black Code is sort of a weird mix of, at times, being somewhat lenient in terms of it doesn't quite have the same strict racial classification that Anglophone or English-speaking colonies developed. You can find hard
0: copies in the capital, by the way. There still are hard copies are well-preserved. Yes. Sorry.
1: <laughs> and so what happens is the Code Noir, the first one I believe is 1683, signed by Louis Fourteenth, designed for Saint-Domingue, and it's to deal with the growing slave population because they're trying to figure out ways to very, in many ways, you know, in a draconian fashion, you know, restrict the slave population. But what they do and they build into it is this sort of idea of if you are affranchi or you are free, you, know, you you are a free black individual and there's, that comes through products of you know as i said the sort of the french had this idea that you could become whiter with generations to a certain degree and that it comes from this less strict racial definition that you could become white whereas the anglophone world that pretty early on starts developing this idea that if you are any percentage black you are not white and that you know you could see how that would come about you have this sort of mixed you know you could view race in different ways. You can view race as sort of this sort of gradating concept that you are passing into whiteness or you're passing into blackness, or you're
0: sliding scale, sliding scale,
1: or you could define it as a kind of clear black, right, you know, right line. And you say, (laughs) and so you could do it from a different perspective. And so what happens in St. Domain in the really going into the 1700s is that. You know, the slave population grows to the point that it's about 450,000 by the, on the eve of the French Revolution in about 1789, so, you know, the French Revolution, then 1790, they do a census and they figure out there are 450,000 slaves in Haiti. Most of them are not even in Haiti for a generation. They were born in Africa because the mortality rate was so high that you had to bring in people from Africa directly. Yeah. So what happens is on the eve of the, so of the French Revolution, you have individuals dying, you know, you have you know, you have 450,000 slaves thir- about 30 to 40,000 gens de couleur libre, or free people of color, who are allowed freedom through these sort of manumission laws or the offspring of white settlers and they purposely give freedom to their children. And they allow that to pass and so they become this sort of weird, this in- not weird, but this sort of interesting middle between the white plantation settlers and the slaves. And so they're during the um, on the when the French Revolution happens, you have all these ideals of sort of human liberty come in, and then you have these incredibly difficult conditions in Haiti. And you have these sort of de- developing ideas of Creole identity developing within the same space. And so Haiti just explodes during that period. And so the directorate of France, right after the um, French Revolution, right on the eve, and while the uh, Haitian Revolution is beginning when they're doing their census they figured out that the second highest province so they counted all the colonies as provinces of france in this very centralized view of france well they, behind the ile de france or paris and that surrounding region the second the population the area with the second highest population was saint-domingue haiti so they had this incredibly large population
0: for the era and, and meanwhile when haiti's revolution they're finding soldiers dead with like African totems and declaration of the rights of men on them. So you have like the spread of ideas happening too in Haiti. I I distinctly remember reading about that very like crazy. I mean, they find dead that. And Haiti's influence
1: (laughs) on history is something that, you know, in sort of African diaspora studies and in sort sort of this understanding of transatlantic history that we're really starting to understand is how incredibly impactful Haiti was and how the ideas that they were exporting to the rest of Latin America were, you know, incredible. So you're asking at this point, like, what? Is, so Louisiana, Haiti. So explain why why is Haiti that influential in the history of Louisiana? Well, Louisiana was created in the model of Saint Domingue. So the French create Saint Domingue, and they're also up in Canada. You have some explorers come down from Canada. They're discovering it's proven
0: profitable. their model. yeah,
1: yeah. So they're coming down into Louisiana, and they're you know wanting to cut off Anglo-American growth. So they're hopping around the Gulf Coast, and eventually they decide that they need to really create a permanent settlement at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Well, they create Louisiana. So a lot of the settlement in the Caribbean, and if you look, you know, one of the things I talk about is if you can orient New Orleans in one of several ways. New Orleans is about 700 or so miles away from St. Louis, which was a big city for a long time that New Orleans was closest to before a lot of the other ones grew. And we're about 800 miles from Charleston. And Charleston's the other kind of quintessential large southern city for most of the Antebellum area. But New Orleans is about 500 or so miles from Havana. In an era of boat travel, Havana's a lot closer for us. Or Mary to Mexico. Mary to Mexico had a lot of outlets to New Orleans before it even had outlets to Mexico City in its own capital. So what it means is that New Orleans is part of this broader region of the Caribbean that we call the Circum-Caribbean. And it's this sort of idea that the colonies of the Caribbean, the European settlement within the Caribbean, expanded not just into the Im- immediate islands that we associate today. It was in Central America. It was on Cartagena and Colombia. It was um, on the Gulf Coast of the United States. And that's how New Orleans and Louisiana oriented itself for a very long time, so they were communicating a lot with Saint-Domingue, while Saint-Domingue is one of the richest provinces on earth. So a lot of the commerce is going through Saint-Domingue. So when Saint-Domingue goes through revolution, that has an incredible impact upon Louisiana. Louisiana is sort of modestly, modestly growing very slowly because it's this very unhealthy region with a bunch of swamps. (laughs) So, you know, you have some... you have some slaves that are brought over, Bienville. you don't
0: have antiseptics and antibiotics it's of exactly. hard to live here.
1: High heart, you know, high death rate. But Bienville, one of our for the first founder of New Orleans, the sort of you know, our sort of founding father per se, um, adopted his black code or the code noir from Haiti or from Saint-Domingue. And so what happens is you're starting to model, you have a higher percentage of slaves in the region for most of the colonial period it's hovering around 66%. And this is when I I went I had a very fortunate opportunity to go to France and do research and I was at the Archive Nationale in Paris and then the Archive du Tremere, the archives of other seas or overseas, which sort of and it you know means the colonies in, in French terms. Um, but I was able to look at all the original call man, you know, the ship logs to Louisiana. So you're literally watching and reading the manifest of slave ships arriving in the New World, and you are literally reading the, you know, the manifest of, of the ships bringing European settlers. And what's really interesting that comes out really quickly is you have very few whites arrive early on, and part of this has to do with you know a whole Ponzi scheme that they created and land speculation, which maybe sounds familiar to today, uh, you know, or has relevance uh, to today. But so they arrive, and you get some French settlers who want to come here, but then they realize, well, you know, the, the land bus went, you know, you had a bubble, it exploded, we have to actually make this place profitable, what are we going to do? So they start importing slaves very early on, and as they have to do it, they use Saint-Domingue as their model for how they're going to expand slavery. So what goes on throughout the 18th century, so New Orleans is founded in 1718, you know, becomes the capital of French Louisiana in 1723. It's growing very slowly. You have some slaves arriving within the region during this early period. Um, but what they're starting to try to do is create cash crops, many of which fail. <laughs> but then they're slowly but surely growing the population over this period. And what you start having by a generation or two in in is actually a black Creole definition start forming. You're born in the colonies. You don't have quite as many slaves coming from abroad. A lot of slaves are being born within the area. And so by really the 1770s, 1780s, and be mindful that this is actually under Spanish rule because the French sold us in 1763. But a lot, because the population was overwhelmingly French, the slave code remains the French system and the overarching system remains this kind of influence by France with Spanish authorities sitting there.
0: We still have the Napoleonic codes rummaging around in our laws today.
1: Yeah. And so as the Spanish are kind of somewhat lenient, um, in letting this happen, but the Spanish do one thing that's very important. They really, really liberalize manumission laws. So what happens is you're allowed to manumit your slaves. They can buy their freedom, which is called cortacion. They can buy their freedom. You have this ever-growing percentage of the slave population that's able to buy its freedom within Louisiana. And that's somewhat to the chagrin of the white French population. But they just kind of – the Spanish kind of make this calculation that after this – the French – the white French settlers revolted against Spanish rule, they have to go, well, who's our friends over here? There are not many of us. Well, who's going to be our friends? So they kind of make this calculation that the growing free black population might be a group that you could leverage against the French population.
0: Where, source, where do you feel – where would you find this calculation? Like where did you, you say that can, that was going on internally? I'm just curious. like what Because
1: it, you can read uh, O'Reilly – like Governor O'Reilly's um, – like you, Governor O'Reilly's stuff, original same. letters you can look at uh, kind of equal policies that they were doing in yeah. other colonies when you had a revolt what, what kind so, of language
0: are they using in those letters
1: well they're kind of they're,
0: that's really interesting to me like, just like to see like, where, this, where you're gleaming the better
1: problem. way to figure it out is what is the timing of them creating the militia They arrive in Louisiana in 1761 They're trying to get their feet on the ground They're placating the white French population And they're saying We're not going to create We're not going to create a black militia And that was one of the first things that they do They say we're not going to create the black militia But then right after the (laughs) rebellion They go we're going to create a black militia and that's a really interesting thing manpower. because they need manpower. They need it as an in-between. So my contention about why black Creole in Louisiana context develops is because the militia is this really interesting thing because you have Pardo and you have Moreno, Moreno being brown in Spanish, so it's your full black, or you have Pardo, which is half black militia. So they're still doing it upon racial classification and making distinction based on this kind of gradating idea of blackness. Uh, so the Pardo militia in some ways got more rights than the Moreno militia, but they're still using both groups to keep in certain degree and check the white population and the slaves. Right. It's an in-between. So it's an in-between.
0: Yeah.
1: And so what's kind of an interesting juncture is that you start having the militia becomes this very important part of black Creole identity as it's developing because they're between whites, the between slaves are starting to understand this great you know, develop this gradating concept of race while they have liberal manumission laws and you're allowed to have this sort of back and forth with the white population in which you could have multiracial offspring. Because it's not expressly and prohibited. Right, have more rights sex. if you were black. You yeah. black
0: Your child who is half white and has more rights, and their child and have more rights. I'm yeah, like, yeah and they're allowed to own. And way. one
1: of the big things in Spanish times is you're allowed to own property. So one of the weird things during this period, and interestingly, is and I, I I don't know whether this is exactly true, but one of the things I was reading at this time is, as a secondary source made the contention that New Orleans and Rio de Janeiro. Are some of the only ports in the entire Americas where slaves could buy slaves, and that's a very complicated narrative. But it has to do with why the Spanish are liberalizing the system because they need more people, they need in-betweens, and they feel threatened. Right within, and they just see the
0: fact that there's just there's more black people than white people. Right? Yeah, you need, you need you need a middle ground.
1: Yeah, you need a middle ground. As
0: callous as that term. Sounds. So
1: you're trying to make stakeholders within your system. So if you're a slave, you could use a slave as – So under cortacion you could buy a slave to sell – to have – make money for you. Um, and then you could use that residual money to buy your freedom. And that's very rare within the Americas. But it shows that the system so is the much more – So
0: the slave buy a slave and use that money to buy their freedom. To
1: buy their freedom under cortacion it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really <right>, <laughs> But I think that part of the empowering element of that narrative, and it's it's not exactly you know I guess correct you know you, it, it's something that we ha- we are uncomfortable as a society talking about, but it's important because it shows initiative, it shows empowerment, it shows you know, and it's not right. I mean, I understand slavery is a fundamental evil. Yes, and that is true That it, it is evil, but the system exists. How are you going to work within its confines and use the law to your benefit? So, you get into the 1780s, you get into the 1790s. Louisiana is now Spanish, but has a very, 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 very heavy French flavor to it. So, what happens, interestingly, is the white Creoles start developing a definition because they start getting a lot wealthier, because sugarcane starts slowly coming as a cash crop. It was something that's ridiculous statistically. They went from like very minimal, like 500,000 pounds of sugar cane because Etienne de Bourre, which is a white creole, develops this way of granulating sugar within Louisiana that fits the humid climate. And they go from like 100,000 or something very small number of um, production line of you know, pounds of sugar to like 5 million within two years. So suddenly they're just boomy exports. Yeah. And this is under the Spanish. The Spanish still have weak rules. So what the French Creoles and the white French population within Louisiana starts doing is, well, we have to make a claim to the state, you know, to this area. How do we claim political leadership? Well, they start using the word term Creole. And so it's, Occurring in, in, in conjunction with the Black Creole definition, they are not debating each other about who's really Creole. That's a debate that comes much later with this very, with when their system starts collapsing. So it's interesting because they start buying uh, positions within the Spanish sort of house, which was called the Cabildo, which still stands in New Orleans. Interestingly, they start buying positions. They start making. They become this planter aristocracy, and they you. know, and so this is where you can see Louisiana at the turn around the 1790s. So while Haiti's system's collapsing, Louisiana's system of or Creole identity is starting to really solidify. So 1790s hit. Where are we standing? We have Spanish authority, we have two simultaneous definitions of Creole developing within Louisiana and a somewhat cohesive identity forming. You go right over to Saint-Domingue, which is the jewel, the cash crop area of France, which they draw a lot of their resources from, and the system just collapses. Unbelievably, in a profound blaze. (laughs) So you have, as when the system collapses and you have the revolution in Haiti and the slaves, literally, you know, they just, you know, they argue for emancipation. The directorate gives them emancipation at first and then takes it away when Napoleon comes in as first consul. Napoleon literally takes away the freedom of the slaves and they were able to keep it as a low-burning conflict up until the point that Napoleon says, actually, we're going to re-enslave you so that we can make a profit off you again. And You can imagine, if you're enslaved, you're free for a couple years and then you're re-enslaved, that creates the most bloody stage of the French of the Haitian Revolution. So what happens is, White Creoles are desperately trying to keep hold of the colony. They make a lot of really bad political calculations because they're the most, the least likely to give slaves rights. And then, But they're trying to somewhat al- ally with the black Creole population, which is this Jean de Couleur-Libre, the free people of color on the island. Now, the Jean de Couleur-Libre are left with this weird decision. Do you You know, you kind of have this residual benefit where you have economic interest in the slave system because you can own slaves and have a plantation and make a profit off of it. Or you can ally with the slaves and you can overthrow the system. So it kind of splits within the black Creole community in Haiti. But what happens is when Toussaint Louverture is captured by the French, kind of through chicanery, he's brought back to um, France – and he sort of historically dies within the Jura Mountains in France, it lets Dessalines, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, come to power. So Dessalines, and you have this, Napoleon sends, I believe, his brother-in-law, Leclerc, to Haiti. They have this incredibly genocidal battle between the uh, slaves and between the French. And, you know, they're not slaves anymore. They're free. And but what it triggers is that the white Creole population starts leaving, you know, the sacking of, uh, you know, Cap Francais or currently Cap Acien in modern uh, Haiti, the sacking of Cap Francais, the, you know, know, the capture of Port-au-Prince, you know, in Haiti. And the black Creoles who are supporting of the um, French and the white Creoles literally get into boats and they go to originally to Cuba. Well, they stay in Cuba for a year, a few years. Cuba goes through this incredible period of growth in their sugarcane industry. But then France invades Spain. So then the Cubans who are Spanish kick the, you know, the Haitian, you know, emigrés out or the, you know, really the Saint-Domingue refugees or as they call themselves out. So what then you have is that you, they have to look around the Caribbean world and who, well, most of the European powers are fighting. You really can't go to the Anglophone world, most of them. So by 1809, when they start leaving, when they get kicked out of Cuba, you, Louisiana has been sold to the United States. But in no real terms, does Louisiana really have an English population? I are mean, not in very substantial terms yet. So then they all, a lot of them end up in Louisiana. So they literally double the population of New Orleans overnight. So there's this, you know, governor that Jefferson, I believe, originally. How
0: fast uh, did that transition? How fast did they double population? Are you talking months? It's about eight years? months, nine months. Double population. Some of them were trickling into
1: Louisiana year. before that, from the 1790s when this conflict started. But basically, in less than a year, the population doubles. Yeah, so this does incredible things to the Creole population of the state. You have. The recent Louisiana... Any infusion of ideas. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You have Louisiana that's recently become American, but in no real terms is it American. Mm-hmm. You have tens of thousands of people who come from a very similar society in Saint-Domingue who you are patterned off of, arrive, and they call themselves Creole as well. And you have kind of definitions of black and white Creolite or Creoleness that kind of jive with, with the system that you're developing. So they move and they kind of create this area called the Faubourg Marigny, and they, you know, in New Orleans, which still stands, and it's where a lot of the Saint Domingue refugees end up, and they kind of bolster this Creole population within the state. So now you can imagine that this very modest population of Louisiana has grown by tens of thousands over the course of a year. So you become American, and one of the interesting things that I found, I actually found this in New Orleans at the historic New Orleans collection, was a document. And it's probably God
0: bless them. They held both of our theses. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's this
1: interesting document, and it's from Upper Louisiana. So Louisiana, if historically we kind of all know the Great Louisiana Purchase, Napoleon sold Louisiana to America. He sold New Orleans for ten million, and the rest of Louisiana for five million. Sorry, the rest of Louisiana. Um, and so what ends up happening is you have you do have Black Creoles and White Creoles living upriver very modest populations, maybe a few thousand. But when Louisiana was sold, there's this really fascinating document that the, um, when, you, when you read the Purchase Treaty, it's the, kind of the conditions where Louisiana will join at the earliest convenience of the United States and it will become a state. Well, if you're Creole sitting in Louisiana, you've just been sold to the United States. It's kind of bittersweet because France is a basket case during this era. It's at war with everyone. You probably don't want to be at war with everyone. You're joining this new country that's very foreign to you. You don't quite know its culture. You're not really in communication with it because it's not how the trade lanes were working at that time. New Orleans was trading with Havana and Paris. It wasn't trading with Charleston and you know London. So what happens during this period is When they signed the treaty, Louisiana thinks we are going to be joining as this one contiguous territory into the United States. And I found a document from signed in 1804 and it was done through, it was written through St. Louis, but it's black Creoles in northern Louisiana, way up near Missouri, modern day Missouri, arguing that they have a right As Frenchmen, because the conditions for their joining the United States was as with all the rights as Frenchmen, and this is when Napoleon reinstituted slavery, so they, as Frenchmen, because Louisiana was sold to France before it was sold to the United States, have the right to own slaves. And the reason why this is an important marker is because the northern territories in the United States are starting to be demarcated as non-slave territories. So when you subdivide Louisiana between the territory of Orleans way in the south near New Orleans, and then you ta- you start subdividing and throwing into free territories up north, they lose their right to slave, you know, to own slaves. And that's another very complicated narrative. How do you explain that? But they have this very colorful language that they it's, they petition Congress directly, which is an incredible. Um, Early activism upon their part about political advocacy, and they have this great line about: "We were very excited about joining the United States of America, but then you we figured out that you were stripping away all of our rights as Frenchmen." And it's like this is the great debacle, or is to you know paraphrase, but it's it was something like this is the greatest travesty to be vomited upon our shores, <laughs> you know, and this is them talking about joining the United States of America. And they were talking about we are soon to be overrun because you're moving all of these people into our territory who are not like us. They don't have to speak French, and this is a violation of our right, and they're going to steal our right to own slaves, our livelihoods to a certain degree. Well, that's exactly what happened. The United States buys Louisiana, they subdivide the territory, the Creole population living up in the area gets decimated. They just, they're just. Totally shallowed out by the growing population of the United States. And this kind of becomes a theme for what happens later. And I kind of use it in my thesis as the canary in the coal mine. Because you have these people who are very cognizant of their rights. You have this early black activism. You have the complicated narrative of free blacks, black Creoles, owning slaves and having a separate racial identity from the people that they own. And that becomes something that's very important. And I guess this might be a little bit of an area where you can start talking. So Amer- Louisiana has recently become American. You have the system upriver being overshadowed. You have Americans moving into the territory. So maybe it's a, a good moment to talk about what are the differences between the Creole racial system and the American racial system.
0: And I mean, we have to wrap it up in the next few minutes. So I know, and we can we can do this again. I want to do this again in the future. Unfortunately, I'm on said early in the morning. Sure, sure. But I'm I'm loving where this is going. Sure, I, I don't want to make that very clear. So it just means you'll look like, up to listen again next week. But please, I do want you to complete your thought.
1: Yeah. So what we your the Creole racial system coming out of the Caribbean, influenced by French ideology, is the idea of you have white Creole, white identity on top. These are the French, you know, normally French, some Spanish, who are classified within this category. You have the Jean de couleur libre the free people of color, who are adopting the idea of black Creole to demarcate their separate group identity. And then you have slave. Now, normally what happens in the Creole side of the city is because of the liberal manumission laws and because of a system that slowly develops, it's a system of concubinage. There is no way around identifying it. It is concubinage. It was the idea that it's called plassage in French, or in Louisiana, it's really where it's used quite commonly. Or we understand it. It was a system in which white Creole men would um, take women who are you know who are black Creole, and you would enter sort of this thing called a mariage de conscience, a conscious marriage. And this institution develops over several several decades. So by when it, Louisiana first joins the United States, it's not white defined yet. But what it allows is that although there is no legal interracial marriage under the code noir or the black code, you are able to get out of it because if you you kind of have a mariage de conscience, a conscious marriage between a white male and a black female or black Creole female, with the benefit for the black Creole family is that you could not only be, be bequeathed wealth, which was sort of the social custom that if you enter these arrangements, you get part of the white family's wealth, which is sort of common fare. It's not necessarily legally protected, but it occurred. Well, the second part of it was that if your child comes out as multiracial, then they are afforded more rights within the gradating concept of race. And that becomes really important because the manumission and the growing free black population There's becomes so high. Haiti, right. And when it co- and Haiti reinforces this because Haiti had a very, 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 very similar institution for decades, long before Louisiana had it. So Louisiana was kind of pattering this idea on Saint-Domingue. Do you
0: think the Spanish, I know they only held Louisiana for a brief time, do you think that Opened, well, they manumitted it. Yeah, well, they that? opened
1: up the space for that to occur at a, yeah, or on a larger scale. At least the yes. The
0: Haitian transition?
1: Yeah. Well, they didn't even do the Haitian. The, Spanish, the Haitians. they in Louisiana
0: for what, 10 years?
1: No, they owned us for about 40.
0: Really? Uh, okay, well, my history is a total of five To about 1803. Um, from 1763 to about
1: 1803. 1763, wow, well,
0: you're right. I know it was 1803. Then the French re-owned us for yeah. a year. Yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah, geez, no.
1: no. So the Haitians were slowly trickling in during the late Spanish period, but they really come in uh, at, during the American period. But right, right. but the Spanish did reinforce it. But this contrast with the American system of race, I do not mean to be too simplistic on Anglo-America. I mean, that's sort of a theme that's, it's just and sometimes it's easier to talk in broader generalities without having to go into all the history of Anglo-America. But the basic idea in Anglo-America about race was you have a you know binary concept of race, as we were talking about earlier. You are white or you're black. And that the lines become more strict as time goes on, but the lines are there pretty early because the Anglo America defined depends upon a racialized definition of slavery.
0: And Except that's, in Louisiana.
1: Yeah. Well you never have whites <laughs> enslaved in Louisiana, but you definitely yeah, have yeah. the because I mean as in the multiracial apply
0: correctly in Louisiana. Yeah. It's 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 and I think that's something that'd be great for us to talk about next time is how the Civil War deconstructed our race. Yeah, arguably yeah. ternary. Yeah, but definitely at least three tier. I guess a try. Yeah, try. Yeah, yeah. But uh, ours, some argue is a ternary. Yeah, uh, that th- there's four. But
1: yeah, um, time anyways. Right. Yeah. No, that would be an interesting because the. I mean, you know, we can talk about this next time, but the, what happens during the antebellum era is that the Creoles divide into an entirely different culture within Louisiana, and then Anglo-Louisiana divides into a completely other culture. And then the, the lines in Louisiana upon political, racial, economic for decades before the Civil War becomes Creole versus America. But what's so interesting about Louisiana... Canal Street. <laughs> what becomes so interesting is, although New Orleans is sort of this evenly split Battleground between the two cultures, they literally become different cities. Is that the state collectively is still dominantly French-speaking because of the uh, because of Cajuns and Creoles together? So you are having this Anglo Creole divide within a predominantly francophone state.
0: And so correct me if I'm wrong. Perspective, just for some perspective, everyone. wasn't louisiana the majority louisiana spoke french until the mid-20th century
1: mid-20th century
0: yes because 50s 60s it's not that
1: they didn't majority because cajuns were much more numerous for a long time creoles kind of Mm, created this economic influential creoles for a long time were very politically and economically influential but they weren't as many cajuns were just a lot but they were kind of relegated politically or kind of isolated politically but what happens is in the 1950s and 60s, when it really starts splitting, people in Louisiana speak English, I mean, by that point on the by and by. But that's when, for the first time, the percentage of people who can speak French drops below 50%. So that is, raises a question. If your history starts in the early 1700s, goes to today, and you spoke French until the mid-20th century then my argument is that we are a Francophone society that has become Anglophone recently. We are not an Anglophone, English-speaking society with Francophone people. Right. And I think that uh, if you, that is an understanding that you could have to understand what Creole Louisiana does in the 19th century when it fights the Anglo-American culture.
0: Well, I definitely, when we talk... I always, I always think about during the strike in 1892 on the docks that about 10% of the population in New Orleans was on strike. That's how large of a strike it was, over 10,000 people um, across multiple industries. And all the racial violence was, um, they, you started having um, whites attacking whites who identified as Creole still. And I think that was A lot of ways Some of the death throes Of Creole identity In New Orleans Because it was like You started to see After that All the white Creole Stopped identifying as Creole
1: Yeah And that has to do with like,
0: And that was like Obviously not like The moment well, But it was like Such ever reading that And it was like Such a A Watershed moment Yeah
1: and there's a lot, I mean, we there's a lot we can talk about how, yeah. and we can talk next time about how Creole society collapses, but I think one of the last vignettes I'll leave you with is, you know, there's a lot of debate today about the Confederate flag, and about, you know, Confederate history, you know, monumentalization, just in terms of, like, how do you remember that history, and I think the South, remember, you know, uh, there's a lot of debates about this, and I mean, I'm of the mind that you should probably take down, at least if it's a part of massive resistance in the 1950s and 60s, you should take it down, but... There's a very famous circle in New Orleans called Lee Circle, and they kind of it used to be called Tivoli Circle, and then in the 1870s, 1880s, it started becoming Lee Circle. The irony is that they put up the monument, and by decree of the city, it was still supposed to be called Tivoli Circle. Well, the reason they put the monument there, and sort of this historical representation of the Civil War, is not just because Lee—that's where the Farragut. Armies, you know, his the Union Army camped when they conquered, you know, when they took New Orleans in 1862, and so it's a symbolic that you put Lee there. But if you actually draw the line of sight where Lee's looking, he's actually looking where the legislature, the Reconstruction Legislature of Louisiana, met during the Reconstruction government. Yeah, we but always Louisiana, joke that
0: he's pointing north to the finish. Or that, that's always the joke. But yeah, he was. That's not what the he's
1: partially to looking be. north, but he's also yeah. partially looking towards the black legislature. And part of, and what's really interesting about that is, and this is built into what you know we can talk about next time is, the reason that he's, you know, the that part of our history is so complicated is because Black Creoles became the dominant part of our legislature during Reconstruction, and that has a lot to do with the opportunities that of Fort Worth, that they gained during the 19th century Antebellum New Orleans.
0: Thank you for doing this, man. I look forward to doing it again before you leave town and head off to Bailey and get to live your life, your dream of being a Frenchman <laughs> and uh, <laughs> cheers so yes um, actually that is how I usually end them is with the cheers so um, thanks everyone for listening and uh, thank you for listening and uh, you want you want to say uh, give us give us the sign off what? cheers